Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We start with a special Guy Talk alert. I'm in a good mood today. That's the alert. (laughs) Wonderful. You know how they start news programs with special alerts? It's like, what is it? So that's my special alert. I'm in a good mood today. So welcome to the show. I've got my, uh, your esteemed uh, panel is ready uh, to take your questions. uh, And they are, um, my panel gets paid uh, anywhere from virtually nothing to absolutely zero. So their reward is answering your questions, which means send them over. You can text them to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Maybe you've heard of restless leg syndrome. Fortunately, these guys uh, sometimes have restless mouth syndrome. So <laughs> send, send your send your your questions. I'm coming out swinging today. You are. Right? You are. Yeah. You are. It's like, who put a nickel in me today? I don't know either. Yeah, but uh, let us know what your questions are. We'd love to hear from you. My power panel today is Jeff Verdorn, uh, Pastor Tom Parrish, and Peter Kapsner. Welcome. Hi, Bill. Hi, Bill. Hey, hey, Tom and Jeff, didn't Bill say last week that he carries usually about 80% of the load of guy talk, and now he's in an exceptionally good mood, too? Should we, should we just let him have at it today? Well, you know, I've sat through some of his comedy routines. I thought that's what we were going to start listening to for the next, you know, 20 minutes or Very so. Very good. Yeah. All right, here's a question that comes from a listener. Uh, this, I believe, is out of Genesis chapter 18. Who were the three men who visited Abraham? Were they angels, or were, were, was one of them God himself? Do you know that verse, that passage? Yep. Uh, Would you mind reading it, uh, or just uh, yeah. maybe referencing one quick yeah. part of it? And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of uh, Mamre, and he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to. Um, now I lost it. My computer just went out. Bowed him to the earth. To the earth. Yes, yeah. there we go. Thank you, Tom Parrish. Any thoughts? Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of speculation on this text. Okay, and I think that what really strikes me now when I was. Long ago, when I was first starting to go to school and, and reading this, I remember reading this text, and I thought, boy, that sounds like the Trinity, doesn't it? These three guys, you know, they kind of come from nowhere, and they come and they talk to him and kind of get him, you know, on the right track. And then I realized when Jesus on the road to Emmaus was talking to the two disciples after he rose from the dead, he said, there are many references of Moses and the prophets that are about me. And so I, I kind of... It fills in for me the thinking that, you know, you may have here in the Old Testament, right in Genesis 18, literally God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but in human form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a theological phrase um, or word. It's called theophany um, or the appearance of God. And, and so this is one of those places. I mean, Jeff and Tom, we get a lot of uh, – so many of the Faith Radio listeners – we puzzle over these same things. And I think it's hard to be dogmatic about exactly what happened there. But I think, Tom, what you just said is is spot on, that at least there is quite a bit of scholarly work done 
wondering about the appearances of God in the Old Testament. So while we might hesitate to say for sure what happened, the word theophany is the word that describes different times in the Old Testament in which it's quite possible that uh, that that God appeared in, in this kind of way. Yeah, I agree with that. There's a, a number of appearances where God comes and makes a physical appearance in the Old Testament, and those are called theophanies. I'll just add one more. A Christophany is more specific. Mm. It's when God appear, mm-hmm. comes in the appearance of a man. So we have several instances of God showing up as a Christophany as well, which is yeah. basically a subset of theophanies. But for example, when 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 Jacob wrestled with God, who was he wrestling with? And arguably yeah. that is uh, a, a Christophany, the incarnate person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh and human form. And that's what I believe one of these men are. I think the other two are most likely angels. Um, and with the third one being Jesus Christ as a Christophany in an Old Testament appearance. Yeah, agreed. All right. Yeah, and I think I think the, as a listener listens to this, and you've got these different views, but they're very much the same. It's a good principle of Bible study, and I appreciate Jeff and Peter you doing this, and and Bill. We look at what the text actually says. We try to be as honest with it as we can, and then we see what the rest of Scripture says that may give us some clues. But we don't become dogmatic about it unless we've got several very clear passages that say exactly the same thing. So I appreciate what you guys are saying. Yeah, just to point out that why do we why do we think that there's some clues here where Abraham calls him my Lord? For example, in the in the Melchizedek uh, routine, where a lot of people think that's a Christophany as well, and I I think I agree with that. But uh, yeah. Abraham gives them a tenth. Well, you know these. The Christophany has to have some godly characteristics to be called Lord, to receive a tenth, to be worshipped. A, a Joshua fell down at the angel of the Lord and worshipped him. Well, angels do not receive worship from men. Uh, an angel in Revelation told John and made that very clear. No, I'm a, I'm a servant just like you are. Get up. You know, don't worship me. Worship only, only God. And so often these Christophanies in the Old Testament uh, receive worship or, or a tithe or are called Lord or so on. So that's where we get these clues from. And nobody's yeah, correct so well Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Paris, just to follow up on something you said too, just about looking at the rest of the text. One one of the things that we can learn, independent of how we understand the specific text, is that we see a pattern in the biblical text of God drawing near to creation and God being intimately involved in creation. And um, that's pretty unique when it comes to some of the other gods uh, that people would have worshipped in that time, whether they be the Babylonian gods. Um, some of the fertility gods, or even when you think about some of the more recent versions of Christianity, like deism, most of, uh, of mm-hmm. America's founders were deists, and that just means that they believed in God for sure, but they thought God was a little bit removed from creation. And what we see in the pattern over and over again is that this magnificent, inexhaustible, um, transcendent God is also intimately involved in the affairs of men and women. And, um, and it's quite the witness that we see right pretty early here in Genesis 18. Yeah, I appreciate this, guys. Nice discussion on this. Uh, and because I have questions coming in really fast, let me ask this. Jeff, did you address who was Melchizedek? I think you did, didn't you? I did. Another... So, so I believe he is a Christophany. Okay, that, that We get more yep. clue of who this guy is in Hebrews. He's described, uh, and I think the clues that are described about him indicate that it was just one more appearance of God in the flesh, therefore a Christophany. Okay, so the question is, what role did he play? 
Well, we know that Christ is a pattern, is a priest in the pattern of Melchizedek. Right. So to to describe Christ in that way, remember what, what the passage in Hebrews that we're talking about is basically saying in the Old Testament, you had a priest, and priests served in office, and as long as they lived, they were able to intercede on your behalf and present sacrifice and offerings and intercede. Be that intermediary, if you will, between the people of Israel and God. We, however, have a high priest in the order of Melchizedek who always lives to intercede for us, Hebrews 7, verse about 8 or 9 or 10 in there. And since he always lives to intercede for us, we have a much different high priest now on this side of the cross. Yep. Well, and, and anybody listening should take just a minute to read through a little bit of Genesis 14, where Melchizedek shows up for the first time, because he comes out and he's described as the king of Salem, which means king of righteousness or king of peace. Uh, and he brings out bread and wine. And uh, I mean, it just so foreshadows or prefigures what uh, mm-hmm. Jesus is going to do ultimately in this uh, this time of the Last Supper and communion and what he says about bread and wine at that point, too. So I love it when those themes show up in Scripture. Scripture just interprets Scripture so well that way. Can I just add you the know, descriptions from Hebrews 7 real quick, Tom? I don't know if you're going here, but I, I found the passage where it says, He is the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, which means king of peace, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And that's a pretty unique description sure of a of just a normal man, for sure. When I went to seminary, uh, I think it was 100 AD, and it <laughs> seemed like that because we didn't have computers, we didn't have access to the scriptures the way we do now. I mean, it was there, but it was all in all the books, and you had to read through them. I had to go to the library to look up certain Greek words and things like that. Now, the average listener, uh, you have resources that that Jeff and and Peter and Bill and I can only marvel at, because you can do searches and find these things yourself. They're all over the place, and it's very obvious when you start looking. Yeah, and then all those Mastodon burgers you used to eat, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well. (laughs) Pizza for me. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, Uh, excellent. Let me know what your questions are, 877-933-2484. We've got a bunch of great questions coming in. I think we'll go to break, and so that gives you a couple minutes to send the questions over via text, 877-933-2484. 2484, you're listening to Guy Talk. The power panel is Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish, and Peter Kapsner. Rosie, how about a little banjo music on the way up? We want to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We're creating encouraging posts every day to help you focus on the important things as you spend time on social media. From graphics that feature Bible verses and quotes from our hosts and show guests to articles about topics you are interested in to videos from our hosts. Search Faith Radio on social media sites to connect with us today. I guess it's a banjo kind of day. (laughs) You're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. The power panel is Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish, Peter Kapsner, and your questions are so welcome. If you have a question you've been wanting to ask your pastor or maybe you've been in a discussion with a friend over the last several months about something and you would love another perspective, this is the place to bring it. We will do our very best to give you uh, the information that 
we have in the collective minds of the power panel. So please uh, let me know, 877-933-2484. Got a couple questions that have come in. Uh, one is uh, regarding uh, statues. Uh, maybe we'd call them religious artifacts. Is it a right to have them in the house? Um, and this uh, question is, I, I put them away because I think they're idols. What do you think? Tom Parrish, let me start with you. Well, if you believe, if you sense that they're an idol, that's the way the Lord spoke to you, put it away. I agree with you entirely. Uh, representations is not exactly what the Old Testament means when it says you shall have no graven image, because the graven image was an image that was worshipped. People bowed down to it. They sacrificed children to it. They they pleaded with it to do things for them. If that's not going on and it's a painting or it's a stained glass or something like that, that's one thing. But on the other hand, uh, my oldest son is very much this way. He feels that those are graven images, and he will not have anything to do with them, and I respect that. Uh, but I do have some paintings in my house that I like very much. Mm, yeah, I totally agree with that, Tom. I think it boils down to a heart issue. If you have a statue in your house or hanging from your mirror on your dashboard or anywhere hanging around your neck, and you think that you have some kind of uh, spiritual power or that 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 object can do something for you, well, now that object has become an idol to you. And in your heart, you're trusting in that for whatever you're looking for. Um, I think that's exactly what the prohibition that God said in, in the Ten Commandments. And remember, this is one of the commandments not to have any graven images before you. Uh, but if it's just an object and you're not looking to that object for any kind of spiritual benefit – well, then it's just an object, and I don't, I don't know that there's anything wrong with having it in your house. Yeah, I think you so agree with that. Um, some, I think sometimes why we have these questions is it was during the Protestant Reformation that among the many things that changed in the practice and views of the church were the use of um, physical representations like this in the church. And, and anybody who is Catholic that is listening or goes to a Catholic church knows that they have maintained uh, quite a bit of physical representation in stained glass windows and in um, statues in the church. And, and the origin of that was uh, very much because they didn't have written biblical scriptures that had been widely disseminated because of the printing press. Uh, it, that The printing press wasn't developed until about the 1600s. And so anything people knew about the Bible was primarily reserved in the scrolls of the monasteries and maybe talked about from the priests up front. But then even then, you guys, I mean, the, the priests spoke in Latin and most of the people didn't speak Latin. And so their introduction to the Bible stories was what they could see around them on the windows and in the yeah. statues. And and could there be then um, the worship of some of these statues? Absolutely. And, and clearly the, the Protestants felt like it had gone too far. So the, the word to describe the purging of statues from the church during that time is called icon, uh, iconoclasm. And uh, mm-hmm. it was just the purging of that. Now, they did it for idolatrous reasons, but the church also has a long history of being able to effectively tell the biblical story through physical representation. And in that sense, it's really not that different than putting on a play in church and dressing up like some of the biblical characters and acting them out. Uh, I think it's really helpful to think in terms of those terms as to why stained glass windows and pictures and statues or um, I frankly, I love doing the 12 stations of the cross around uh, Good Friday. I love the physical depiction and pausing and stopping and being a part of sure. that practice. So, yeah, it's it is a matter of the heart. If, if you're starting to worship these things or that's where you get your life, then chuck them out like anything else. But I don't think there's anything intrinsic to any of them that makes them evil. 
There's that awkward pause. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it, and there it is. All right, so let's move on. Uh, speaking of, what were we just speaking of? Uh, idols. Idols, of course, yeah. So uh, let's segue into the next question, which has to do with ghosts. And I'd like to ask the question, hmm. are there such as things as ghosts? Now, this listener is asking the question in the voice of her six-year-old son, which is very funny to me. So I don't know how a six-year-old would say, are there ghosts? Yeah, well, there is a spirit world. We know that Paul says our yeah. battle is a spiritual build, battle. That is the battle in which uh, we fight every single day. Now, we live and see and sense in a physical world, and it's really hard to see that spiritual world. And so a lot of us are kind of ignorant to it or blind to it or whatever. But we know as Christians that is our battle. We also know that demons are real. Demons Mm -hmm. are in this world. We see several accounts, a handful, about five or six accounts in the Gospels, of the disciples and Jesus actually de- dealing with demons that have indwelt other people. And I believe that demons are still alive and active today and mucking up the world. We also know that we have Satan, who Scripture says roams the earth looking for people to devour. So we have an angelic presence in this spiritual realm as well. So yes, the spiritual realm is real. Now, ghosts of dead individuals I don't think are real because here's why, and I know a lot of Christians don't agree with this, or some theologians don't agree with this, but every single person who lives on this earth when they die, I believe, is destined to go to one or two places. If you are a believer, you go to heaven. If you are not a believer, I believe you go to Hades, to the torment side of Hades where the rich man went in Luke 16. So I think that is God's, that that is the destiny of a human soul, and I don't believe there's there's human souls wandering the earth as ghosts today. I think most of those representations are demonic. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Peter. Or, or I'm going to jump in. <laughs> Throwing me out of the bus on this one. <laughs> I, don't, I think Jeff's answer is, is a really, um, there's, there's a lot in that that is worth paying attention to. And, and I think faithfully represents um, a very reliable way to understand it. I think, you know, some of the other angles people might um, attend to in this conversation is that there do there does seem to be some evidence of um, some some appearances of people who had died, uh, whether it be Samuel being raised from the grave with the witch of Endor, or towards the end of Matthew, some graves open and many people appeared to to others and. Um, and then I think you combine it uh, with almost every major world religion. Uh, Christianity and otherwise has um, some sort of category for people that have passed on and yet are still accessible. Now, I'm not advocating for the fact that that is. I'm just describing what what goes on. And I think the one uh, interesting thing for me is that um, people I find are scared to talk about experiences that they have had related to this. But if you are the first, like I will sometimes say in my classrooms or in church seminars that I'm doing, and maybe the room is 30 or 50 or 70, 100 people, whatever it is, and I'll say, why don't you just uh, circle up and why don't you tell one of the sort of the craziest unexplained stories of the spiritual realm that you've had the the chance to experience? And, and many of them fall into the category of what Jeff just described about encounters with angels or demons or something else that was unexplainable. Uh, and quite a few people end up with stories of of having um, experienced somebody that had passed on. And I know many very reliable pastors and people who have had those stories as well. So what to do with that, I don't entirely know. I don't think it's central to our faith. I don't think it's something that we should be messing around with for sure. 
Um, but there's well, God just a prohibits lot of it, right? Right, Tom? Yeah, I'm, absolutely. Uh, Thank you, Peter? Jeff. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't mess around with it at all or make it a central part of our faith. And just really quick, it just for clarification, I agree that they can be accessed. I believe that the 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 communicating with the dead is possible. We actually see that in yeah. Scripture, like you mentioned, and that's why God, I think, actually prohibits that for believers to even play in that area. But the but I, what I was describing specifically is a whole bunch of dead people floating around like ghosts still on in the world, in the spiritual realm, running around. Not to say that they're not accessible, because I think you're absolutely right, Peter. Mm. Yeah, Steph. and, you know, look at Luke 16 when you get a chance, because that's where Jesus tells the parable of Abraham and Lazarus. And the the, uh, the poor man who was not fed is in heaven. And, of course, you know, the uh, rich man or Lazarus in heaven, the rich man is not. And Jesus says there's a great gulf, you know, in this parable that one cannot cross over to the other. Now, they saw each other, but there was no passing over. So I don't entirely know theologically what that means, but I know in my experience of working with people, and I've had many people come to me who would say my mother appeared to me in a dream or my mother was walking the house long after she was dead and things like that. And it took quite a while working with these people, but when they got down to the bottom line, it turned out in these cases that I'm familiar with, these were not relatives. This was a demonic presence masquerading itself and trying to get the person to go the wrong direction. And so I'm always cautious with that when I talk to people and they've had these experiences. I listen, I empathize appropriately, we look at Scripture, and then we, we probe deeper to see what's really going on. One one last thing, Tom, I think this question came up, uh, and, and I don't think Peter was on a few weeks ago about possession. And mm. I think every time we talk about demons, I like to point this truth out. I believe that when a believer is filled with the Holy Spirit and sealed with the Holy Spirit, they can no longer be possessed by a demonic force because they're filled with the Spirit. doesn't mean that you're still not being tormented by demonic uh, activity and presence, but not possessed. An unbeliever who is spiritually dead, not united with Christ, I believe that is the only person a demonic force could possess. So I think we had talked about this a few weeks ago. Right, we did. Yeah. And, and Christians can be harassed by the demonic, but they cannot control us. You know, because he who lives in us, says the scripture, is greater than he who lives in the world. Amen. So we have the, we have the power of Jesus, and we need to—here's the problem I see in Christianity. Most Christians have not been taught they have the authority and how to exercise that authority when it comes to these strange feelings, thoughts, or experiences, how to use the name of Jesus properly in order to get to the bottom of what's really going on. Yeah, agreed. And I lose all credibility in this conversation anyway, because I get my theology from Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore, and Whoopi Goldberg. Why not? So I, I should probably just tap out at this point. Anyway. Uh, the love goes with you, man. The yeah. love goes with you. Yeah. It does. It does. All right. You're at the potter's clay, Peter. All right. <laughs> oh, boy. Where do I go from there? I think great. I I think, yeah, I think a long time, and now I've got to think about it again. Yeah, sorry about that, Tom. I, I apologize. All right, we'll take a little break, but lots more Guy Talks. matter of fact, today is the extended version. We're going to do an extra 30 minutes of Guy Talk today, so there's still lots more to come, which means i got lots of time for your questions. And i got some great ones I'm looking at right now. We'll get to them right when we come back from break, and we're excited to hear from you. So text the question over 877-933-2484. Of course, this is Guide Talk or Guys Who Talk, and it's Jeff Verdorn, Peter Capster, and Tom Parrish. Be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to Guide Talk, where we buy in bulk and pass the savings on to you. We're uh, always open to take your questions, 877-933-2484. Here's a question. After a Christian dies, they will go to meet Jesus and then will get justice. Where will they go after that? When a Christian dies. When a Christian dies, they will go to meet Jesus and then will get justice. Where will they go after that? Yeah, so I don't know what exactly they mean by justice, but let's describe what I think Scripture points. Paul actually says that when a person dies, when a believer dies, they're absent from the body and at home with the Lord. He says mm-hmm. elsewhere that I would rather depart and be with the Lord, and that would be better by far. So I think we can conclude that when a believer dies in their physical body, their physical body goes into the ground, but the immaterial part of them, their soul, Will and spirit will go up to heaven and be in paradise with the Lord. Um, the yeah. justice part, I think, has probably they're referring to what Scripture describes as the bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ, and I think that is the believer's judgment that they might re- be referring to, and that is where Jesus says He'll reward the believer for what they've done in the body. Mm-hmm. The good He receives the reward. The bad, fortunately, is burned up. Remember, God uh, does not count our sins against us anymore. So right. that, that is the believer's judgment where we receive our reward. But remember, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. There's no, quote-unquote, judgment left for the believer except for fact, the reward judgment at the Bema seat. So. That's right. Hey, well, Scripture says, the moment you believe, you pass out of judgment onto life. And judgment for the Christian in that sense is over. Because Jesus has taken that judgment for us. Yeah, I don't have anything to add. I just I know Scripture says that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. The look and feel and touch and experience of all of that, I think, you know, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive what God has prepared. So I, I lean into that. I know that there's such a an, an existential question of, gosh, what happens for sure when we die? And, you know, we just, at the end of the day, um, I'm going to just go ahead and guess it's going to be more marvelous than we could ever imagine to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And the the sequence and chronology and time and all of those sorts of things, um, I think for me, I would rather just just trust the shepherd for all of that than try to make sure that I understand all of what's going on, because it just, there's a lot in that conversation for sure. I recently did a funeral, wonderful lady. Uh, who had died, and shortly before she died, she came out of a coma, raised her hands, big smile, and and said she was being welcomed home by Jesus. Hmm. And then she passed away. And I shared that story, and then I've got about 50 more like that, which I've done a lot of research on because I was there. I actually saw it happen. After the funeral, uh, two of the visitors to the funeral were both hospice nurses, and they ran up and nearly tackled me, and they said, you're the first pastor we've heard talk about this. We see this off and on. We also see people that don't see the Lord, but see something much blacker, oh, wow. or that's very black. And we don't know what to do with that, but you gave us some clarification. So, yeah, I've seen this. I know the reality. And what's been fun for me is having served now in my lifetime seven different churches. I have people from different churches telling me the same thing on their deathbed, not knowing one another at all in this life. Tom, you, you wrote a whole book on this subject. I can't remember the name off the top of my What's the name of that book? 
stepping into eternity and encountering Jesus at the moment of death. Mm, wonderful book. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, here's a question. If we bow down to using pronouns of they and them instead of he and she, are we condoning behavior we don't agree with and conforming to the ways of the world? Can we phone a friend on this one, or is this... Uh, yeah, who, who needs a lifeline? So <laughs> yeah. All three of us, right? Maybe we should just call each other. We could, we could ask Larry. <laughs> oh, yeah, Larry. <laughs> no chance. <on> this one. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm willing to dive into this one for what it's worth. Um, if you look at historically and culturally, we've gone through this kind of stuff before. Not exactly the pronouns now, but there's been a lot of this throughout history. The people that have stood firm in the Lord... And did it lovingly. You don't have to be mean to people that think they're trans, that are going through transgenderism and think that this is the right thing. I mean, I don't believe it's the Lord's will, but you can still greet them with respect and love and all of that. But it doesn't mean we have to conform to every whim or change that comes from the world. Because I look at the way the Lord created us, and the Bible is very strict on that He created us male and female. And uh, we need to learn to walk in that and to stand up for that. But we do it in a way that's polite and, and gentle, but at the same time, extremely firm. And that's what I try to do. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. That was a, a great answer, Tom. And we'll leave it at that. All right, I'm going to move on to the next question. And they're flying in today. So thank you for the questions you're sending over. They're awesome questions. Now, I'm already looking your way, Jeff Dorn. Mm-hmm. And I think we, <laughs> this can be a one and done answer because I think you're going to have a great answer for this. Here's the question. After Jesus died on the cross, did he actually go to hell and spend time there before going to heaven? Yeah, so the Apostle Creed says that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, uh, was crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell, but the hell really, I think, should be Hades. Uh, The Mm -hmm. Greek word for this place is called Hades. This is what we were just talking about, Luke 16, Hades, one side paradise, the other side torment. And Jesus told us very specifically, actually twice in Matthew, that just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, Hades is always described in the earth below, under the earth, beneath the earth. This is where Hades is. Now, it's not physically in the center of the earth, but that's how God describes this place as being down, just as heaven is described as being up, right? But you can't dig down there. Now, the question is, which side did he go to? Well, the righteous went to one side, the unrighteous went to the other side. Which side do you think Jesus, the righteous one, went to? And I think he went to the paradise side, and that's where he spent the three days and three nights. Awesome. All right. Here's another question, gentlemen. This is open to all three, whoever would like to jump in. In John 11, uh, we're talking about Lazarus becoming sick, and he dies and is raised. Okay. But in that same chapter, in the two verses prior to when Jesus starts discussing it, it's uh, verses 9 and 10, and I'll read it. It says, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Then he proceeds to talk about Lazarus, and the question is, These two verses seem out of place for what Jesus is teaching here. I'm trying to make sense of it in the context of Lazarus. Is there a context there that we're understanding or missing, or are they unrelated? 
I'll hang up and listen. Well, if you like go a, back to verse Jeff 8. Question to me. <laughs> what did you say, Peter? Yeah. That seems like a good Jeff Redoring question for me. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, you started. I'm open to that. Go ahead. No, Tom, you started. Go ahead. I go back to verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And then he talks about the light. Well, he describes himself in the scriptures as the light of the He is the light of the world. And basically what we're talking about here is not simply a nighttime and a daytime. Uh, I mean, it's what we can relate to as light and dark. But that Jesus is the one who brings the light. And wherever anybody else walks is in the darkness. And he goes on then with Martha to talk to her. And that's where we get that tremendous confession. You know, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, he who believes in me, though we are dead, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes shall never die. So I think it's all part of the, of the one context. It's just that there are different things going on as he's going to where Lazarus was buried, and there were people that wanted to stone him because he was going there. I agree. I think this is a bigger meaning about who has life and who has who is under death, who has, who has the light and who is in darkness, you know. Paul says, uh, was, was that your iPad? I don't Tom? know what that was. Yeah, I think but that there's going to be demerits <laughs> going out. Uh, Paul says, getting punished. Paul says that we as believers are children of the light and children of the day. So I think this picture of being in the light is a metaphor for uh, for having faith, being, being a believer, being saved. We uh, hope that little tune is an affirmation. Okay. This is exactly <laughs> the right answer. Awesome. All right, here's another uh, question, and this I'm looking once again your direction, Jeff, because I think what I can do is possibly send a link from a program that you and I have done on this question so we can answer this briefly. But Jesus was three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, but he really was not there. He was not long at all from Friday to sometimes Sunday morning, right? Mm. So again... We hear about three days and three nights, and we've discussed this before on yeah, the show. Yeah, so one of the favorite things I do, once a year we do it on your yes, program, we, we look at the in detail the timing of the final week of Christ's life. And uh, to me, this used to bother me even when I was in high school sitting in church uh, every Easter that he was crucified on Friday and rose on Sunday. But it says three days and three nights. So I go, let's see, Friday, Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, Sunday. Well, that's only two nights. And I've always wondered about that. Well, later in life, when I started studying it, um, I discovered some. So the timing of that final week, I believe, and I have concluded that it really points to a Thursday crucifixion instead of a Friday crucifixion. And one of the cool things about the Thursday crucifixion in what I believe is 32 AD was just as Israel was sacrificing their lambs for the Passover that evening uh, in, on Thursday which scripture says you sacrifice your lambs late in the day at twilight, so too late in the day the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was on the cross, I believe, yeah. Thursday evening. And the whole thing about Friday being a Sabbath, which would have been a high Sabbath for the Passover, and then Saturday being the weekly Sabbath, uh, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, that meant that in that week there was two Sabbaths in a row. And so that's why nobody could go to the tomb and prepare the body until first light Sunday morning, which is when he was already out of the tomb when the women showed up. So, look, we know that he rose on Sunday and the 
biggest truth, and I think everybody here agrees with this, is that he actually rose, conquered the grave, and came out of the tomb. Yeah. So, um, But I, yes, I believe that he was crucified on a Thursday. Thank you, uh, Jeff Verdorn. I appreciate that. That was good. All right, here's a question. Preaching pastor who no longer does pastoral ministry, question mark. Shouldn't they keep in touch by doing a significant amount of hands-on pastoral ministry, not just becoming an academic? Believe it or not, there are many, many pastors today who view being a pastor as a vocation. I never viewed it that way. I always viewed it as a calling. And when the Lord called me when I was a young man to go into the ministry, I didn't think this was going to be my job from where I get my income. It was nice that I got an income. But this is what I do until the day I die. Now, I'm not putting down the other pastors. The problem for most of them is they have not been raised or taught in an environment that makes this a calling. For many of them, it is a vocation. And so when they retire, hey, it's time to go to the lake. It's time to go on trips. It's time to go around the world. And God bless them for that. But most of them don't feel they have the responsibility of ministry anymore. My attitude is I have the responsibility to minister to people until the day I die. Thank you for that, Tom Parrish, Pastor Tom Parrish. I'll note note that as well. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, lots more time for your questions. Not to mention we're doing the extended version of God Talk today. Granted, I still have a panel at top of the hour. We'll find out. Jeff Dorn, Tom Parrish, Peter Kapsner is the power panel. Let me know your questions for them, 877-933-2484. When we come back, I have a question that says, please explain what chosen and predestined us means in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 5. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Those are some horns. All right, we're Guy Talk, guys who talk. Great questions coming in, and I'm excited that we're going to extend for 30 more minutes today. So keep the questions coming and stay with us. Don't go anywhere because we got uh, a lot of a lot of great questions. Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish, Peter Kapsner is the power panel. Right before break, I lit the dynamite uh, fuse <laughs> and I said, please explain what chosen us and predestined us means in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 5. Have at it. Peter Kapsner, you go first. <laughs> I don't remember drawing a straw. On this one. <laughs> you can take you um, can take a pass. You got one pass an hour if you want. I get one pass. Yep. You yeah, can take no, it if well, you want. It. So th- there's a few different views. There's probably two main views to this, and, and maybe even one that people are most familiar with, and then another view that also is is a main view, and maybe people are, are less familiar with it. But the first view would indicate that when it talks about he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy, predestined, and adoption, sonship, and and all this language from Ephesians, is that um, what Paul is trying to indicate there is that there is a set group of people that God um, predestined or designed to be the ones that he would have with him in heaven for 
time. And then by default, uh, there's also some that he predestined or that would spend eternity apart from God in Hades or hell. And so that, I think that version of predestination has really puzzled a lot of people. It's called into question God's fairness and his justice and, and understandably so. And, and, you know, volumes and volumes of, of books have been written on that subject from that angle. Um, I think a second angle is perhaps more faithful to the biblical text uh, is, I guess, I'm just revealing my own bias and what's going on here. But we have to keep in mind that Paul was uh, clearly not writing this letter to write something about systematic theology like we would experience today. He wasn't just sitting on the Mediterranean seashore and and thinking, gosh, what should I pen that maybe I can get published to be used in the local seminary? Um, Right before anything we read in verses 3 through 10 and 11 and beyond, he says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus. So he's he's telling us right there in Scripture who he's writing to, and he's writing to the people of Ephesus, almost all of whom were Gentiles. And without going much further into this, because it's a much bigger conversation, but uh, Paul's main mission was to the Gentiles. That's what Jesus told him to do, to bring the good news to the Gentiles. And both Jew and Gentile alike were terribly confused that Paul um, should be going to the Gentiles because the Jews were never supposed to have anything to do with the Gentiles. They weren't chosen people. They weren't part uh, of the holy group or anything. And so when he's using words like chosenness here and adoption to sonship and all of that, I would say that the text makes a lot more sense and is not at all problematic anymore, consistent with the rest of the Bible, that what Paul is talking about is he's reassuring the Gentiles that God had in his mind all along from a predestination standpoint that the Jews were not going to remain the only people who could be the chosen people, that he would be grafting in the Gentiles into the community of faith because everybody in Ephesus would have been Gentiles and confused. So the predestination is about God's preordained plan that he was going to come for the whole world through the seeds of Abraham and uh, and not just for the Jewish people. So I think we get really confused when we interpret the Bible through individualistic salvation kinds of ideas because they didn't even have those kind of ideas in Paul's day. He literally wouldn't have thought individualistically. Um, none of that kind of thinking really came into being until the 16 or 1700s. So it gets really difficult to read backwards into Paul our individual questions when he's writing to communities of people back then. So that's my best whack at it now. I mean, I'm sure people have many other views, but hopefully that's somewhat helpful to hear both sides of it. Oh, that's a good kind of background to, yeah, this issue. Remember, this issue has been debated within the church for about 500 years and probably even longer than that. Um, So we're trying to draw some conclusions from Scripture. I would just like to point out, for those who believe that God actually has chosen some individuals to be saved and has chosen other individuals not to be saved. Because at first glance in the scriptures in English, that's kind of what it looks like. He's chosen some to be saved and others not. Uh, But I don't think, like Peter just described, I don't think that's what it's saying here. And if you think about God's foreknowledge, God knows, this this is one angle on this issue to, to consider, that God knows the future. He knows everything that's going to happen. He knows your very thoughts. He knows tomorrow. So when he says that he's written those that are going to be saved in his book of life before the foundation of the world, that can be true, but it can also be true that he doesn't cause that to happen. He can know the future without causing that future to happen. And I think those that fall on the side that predestination and this choosing 
is God choosing some or electing some unto salvation, make the connection or can't make the distinction between God foreknowing and God causing these things to happen. And then the last part, particularly with this verse that I want to point out, is that when it says that in him we were also chosen, which in English sounds like, oh, he chose us, meaning unto salvation. But actually that Greek word has a sense of more obtaining an inheritance. And if you actually Mm -hmm. have an NIV study Bible, it will actually say, or we were made heirs, which adds a different light to this passage. In him we were also made heirs, having been predestined according to the plan, which is what Peter was just talking about, in him who works out everything. So that's just one of the things that we receive when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, which I think is the key that opens up the door to salvation. We believe he then saves, and one of the things he does is make us heirs. Where were you two guys when I preached on this a couple of weeks ago? Uh, It would have been helpful. (laughs) When I look at this verse, to me, some things really stand out. In verse 4, he talks about, even as he chose us, and I think Jeff and Peter are saying absolutely right, I think error is a good word. But too often we get the idea chosen because we're somebody special as compared to chosen for a purpose. You know, we Mm -hmm. are nobody. He has chosen us out of his own will to do his will and to be his ambassadors and his ministers of the gospel. None of us deserve it. None of us earned it. None of us were born into this world with mastery skills. The Lord said, boy, i got to use those people. No, he just simply did that. And I get what that means. When you get to the word predestined, and I had a woman a couple of years ago really help clear this up for me. She, was, she wanted to get married. Her wedding was about a year off. She said, here's my problem, Pastor. I love the man I'm going to marry, but my mom wants me to be in the wedding dress she wore, and I'm about 50 pounds too heavy. Will you pray with me and support me and help me in losing the weight? And I'll tell you, that poor girl, she struggled. But she, on the day of her wedding, she actually got into that dress. Mm. Predestined is not so much that the Lord's already worked it out and said, you know, this is you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. The predestined is much more like uh, a mold. He's got a shape for us, and that shape is Jesus. And he wants to conform our thinking and our speaking and our behavior to be just like Jesus. And the experiences of life are the things that help shape us to come along that way. And even through those, we make mistakes. He can redirect us how to get in shape and ultimately look like Jesus, our Lord. Hmm. Yeah, you know, predestined, that word only appears twice in Scripture, once here in Ephesians, the other one is in Romans 8. And and Tom, what you were just describing, the other instance says he's predestined us to be conformed to the image yes. of Christ. Here it says yes. we're predestined according to the plan. In Romans it says we're predestined to be conformed to his yes. image. Neither place says that we're pre- some are predestined to be saved. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And Jeff, 2022 works against us because we read back into this our denominational biases rather than letting the scriptures read out to us what it's actually saying. And I'm very yeah. guilty of that. I am too. And and Jeff, I think what you just said a little bit ago too about the heirs, um, if you just think about how important it was within the Jewish worldview that you would be the heir mm-hmm. to something. And so when we have that language in there, I'm sure it would have alerted the Gentiles that they too could be included in the heirs of the promises that God made to Abraham that ultimately were not enacted because you were a, a, a person of a certain heritage like the Jews. They were brought in by your faith. It, it only was your faith independent of, of heritage that then allows you to be adopted and chosen as heirs and, and part of the promises that God had from the beginning of creation. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right, we've got a couple minutes left before the top of the hour, and fortunately, we're going to extend Guy Talk another 30 minutes. So I'm looking forward to that, and keep your questions coming over, 877-933-2484. Here's a question. Does the Bible have anything to say against tattoos and piercings? Um, yeah, there's a verse. Yeah. I'll try to find it. It says, do not mar or pierce your body. Do not mar... Do not mar or pierce. Is that is am I? Um, yeah, I don't. I'm not finding it right away. But yeah, Leviticus yeah. 19, I think, is where it says, "Do not make yep, any cuts you on your body, or pierce your body, or mar your body." And and look, does piercing your body or getting your a tattoo keep you out of heaven? Of course not. We just had this no. conversation that salvation is by faith, right? Uh, but why God gave this command to Israel not to do this is because this was a pagan practice. This was a pagan practice. Do you remember when when um, when um, um, Elijah was set up the two um, um, altars and, and the prophets of Baal were supposed to pray to their gods and then he was going to pray to his God and we we're going to see which one was the true God that would send fire to consume this altar, right? And there's a line in there that, that says they slashed themselves and cut themselves. There was an idea in the pagan world that if that your blood gave power to the to the gods to the spiritual realm if you will and in reality it's God's blood that was spilt to give us power Amen. it's a counterfeit sign yeah. and so I think he told Israel don't be like the pagans yeah we got to hit pause yeah. we'll be right back with lots more guy talk after the uh, very short break coming up Keep your questions coming. Great questions you've got for us today. As always, I love the questions. 877-933-2484. We'll be back. See who's still around. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.